0: You're listening to Women Making Waves.
1: Our next guest is an aviator, adventurer, and inspirational speaker. She has piloted her aeroplane all over the world and is a huge advocate for getting more women involved in aviation and STEM in general.
0: Tracy doesn't fly a modern plane, she flies a Boeing 1942 Stearman biplane. Linda and I spoke to Tracy about her life.
2: I never actually thought, ever thought that I'd be a pilot. The first time you get into an open cockpit, you're just thinking, how is this possible? The military culture that was developed in World War I was hostile to women. There are peculiarities about the the handling, they're idiosyncratic, unlike modern tricycle undercarriage, closed cockpit. Aviation is very unforgiving. When something Mm. goes wrong, it's not as if you can just pull up at the side of the road and get out. I was raised in Canada, actually. In the early years, my father, who had an interest in old cars and aviation, took us to an air show. So I think it was possibly that. Watching those magnificent men in their flying machines would be one of the biggest inspirations of all time. And then of course I had my first flying lesson at 16 in Canada. Again I never there was never any master plan. I just there was no obvious access into it. You know when we came back from Canada in 1972 we were up in in Cumbria, the north of England, and we had a pizza restaurant. We had no money. You know there were no local aero clubs, so I never actually thought ever thought that
1: I'd be a pilot. But why have you chosen to fly biplanes? Why not just the kind of more normal planes or in fact gone on to be a commercial pilot?
2: Well, I think it was a really early love affair. I think when you first see old aeroplanes, and I'm talking the really early ones, you know, the sort of handmade, hand-stitched leather and fabric, you know, struts and wires and wooden propellers... You know, these are just works of art. But it's really the interwar period that's interesting to me. You know, what's known as the golden age of aviation around 1927 to 1937. And then we see this extraordinary flourishing of civil aviation. And particularly the women. This is where they really make their debut onto the world stage and doing these astonishing flights, incredible acts of bravery and determination, and fighting the male establishment the whole time, you know, fighting hostility and prejudice, and just driving this forward, trying to prove that women were equal to men, that they could do it, they wanted to be independent, and they wanted to work as commercial pilots.
0: Tracy, when you became very interested in aviation, when at what stage did you then realise that the women were the ones that you were more interested in, wanting to follow their paths? When did the interest start?
2: I've, You know, all of my life I've known about Amelia Earhart and Amy Johnson. My own interest as a pilot in them came perhaps in the last ten years. So as I've, you know, got the Stearman and looked at how to use it and develop this mission, you know, I wanted the Stearman, my aeroplane, this is my 1942 Boeing Stearman, I wanted the aeroplane to have a purpose and a mission, and to be a sort of flagship for this historic female achievement. So in parallel with that, I then started really researching these stories. I was then given a book called Lady Icarus, which was about the wonderful... Irish aviator, Lady Heath. And of course, you know, her, her crowning achievement, which was the first person to fly solo from Cape Town back to England in 1928. Now, this is a woman that nobody remembers anymore. And yet, you know, she was she was one of our first female Olympic athletes. She goes on to become our first licensed engineer, female engineer. She's the, the first woman to hold a commercial license in this country. She's winning all the air races. You know, she was beating the men at their Mm. own game here. One of the things that she
0: found really hard to obviously pay for all these exertions. I mean, how did she how did she get to do that? I mean, you know, it's not cheap, is it? Even in those days to fly all the way around the world. and.
2: No, it's not cheap. And actually, she was funny because she ended up marrying money. Her second husband was James Heath, uh, you know, an industrialist. And he basically bankrolled it. I mean, he was 45 years older than she was, so this was obviously a career move. And she quite flagrantly advocated marrying for money. And practically, <laughs> on her, f- her first action on marrying him was to buy herself an aeroplane, ship it to Cape Town, and then <laughs> she sets off on this world-famous flight. And you've been following some of those flights as well yourself, haven't you? I have. So the Africa one, and this took four years to pull together because I didn't have an aeroplane, I didn't have the backing, so it was starting from scratch, but, uh, you know, the decision was made in about 2009, and I just knew with a certainty that I was going to fly Africa, and I'd wanted to fly Africa for 25 years. And that, off the back, of course, the wonderful film out of Africa, you know, which has that fantastic sequence of the yellow tiger moth flying over the Rift Valley and this wonderful love affair. It's one of the defining
1: images of my life. And you replicated that yourself? Well, <laughs> 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 parts of it, let's say. But it must be quite a thing because you're in an open cockpit. There's no there's no glass roof over the top. There you are with the wind in your hair. You're very, very exposed. You know, this is this is quite a hostile environment.
2: The first time you get into an open cockpit, you're just thinking, how is this possible? The noise, the violence, vibration, the smell, the poor visibility, actually, because I'm flying, you know, a tail dragger. They're configured on the ground with with a very high nose attitude, so you can't see anything over the top when you're taxiing. They're very, very vulnerable to crosswinds. There are peculiarities about the, the handling. They're idiosyncratic unlike modern tricycle undercarriage closed cockpit Mm -hmm. you know trainers which is in fact what I trained on obviously but once you start flying these old aeroplanes they become absolutely addictive.
0: From a point of view of flying the planes on a regular basis do you have to keep quite fit I mean it's a pretty big plane and it's a very
2: strong plane are you strong? Uh, I you know I I am strong I am strong and reasonably fit although one could be a lot fitter but, you know, you have to get in, you know, just pu- pushing this thing around. You've got to get up onto the top wing to refuel it, so that's quite a gymnastic exercise. Every time I fly, I actually get out and I'm stiff. So that tells you, you know, that obviously you're using muscles and there's quite a bit of tensile resistance with it,
1: yeah. Have you ever been frightened when you've been flying? Many times. Yeah, 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 absolutely
2: Is that part
1: of the thrill for you?
2: Well, certainly, you know, when when you're terrified in the end, you think, oh God, if I could just land I'm I'm never going to get in the air again (laughs) So I've had a few of those, to be honest but by the time you get through it fear is a very temporary thing You know, and it's always induced by immediate circumstances, which could be the weather, horrific turbulence, you know, and it usually is the weather. It can close in very, very quickly, and you're slow. That's one of the biggest hazards and risks with this kind of flying.
1: You were talking earlier before we uh, went on air, and you were saying that you were listening all the time to the engine. I imagine that that can go wrong as well at times. Any
2: engine, whether it's in an old aeroplane or a modern aeroplane, can go any time. I've got nine-cylinder, 300-horsepower Lycoming engine. This is one of the most reliable engines ever built. In fact, I think it actually holds a record for never having had an AD, which is a kind of maintenance issue against it. So it's a very basic engine, you know, it's old-fashioned, mechanical, it's all exposed, you know, the cylinders are exposed, it's very accessible in terms of the maintenance. It's a very, very strong engine, so I have total faith in it. Mm. But, of course, I did have a problem um, with, it, with it in America. Yeah, um, but that was, that was know, in Arizona,
0: wasn't it, in 2016? And was. I know we don't want to talk about crashes, but, you know, it happens. It's not like falling over on a bike and getting up again. It's a pretty traumatic thing, isn't it, to, to crash a plane? Well, the
2: thing is aviation is very unforgiving when something mm. goes wrong it 's not as if you can just pull up at the side of the road and get out yeah you know you're you're somewhere at altitude and when I had this problem i'd only you know I was only one hundred and fifty feet it 's just shortly after takeoff, and it was at very high density altitude so i'd already taken off that the elevation was something like five and a half thousand feet and then in the temperatures on the day it's a performance equivalent to taking off at seven thousand feet. Now, in a piston engine, which is just normally aspirated, so it's not supercharged or anything, you're operating on less than half the engine power. Now, what then happened is it lost just under 300 RPM. That was enough to stop it flying in those conditions. So suddenly, you're climbing out normally, the engine starts to lose power, and I just thought, you know, I'm not going to clear the power lines that were looming sort of 150 yards ahead and I just gingerly turned it through 30 degrees to the left and flew it into the ground. So do you do you find,
0: think, sometimes that your life is flashing in front of you? Do you think, this is not going to be my moment, I need to sort of sort this out and fly, or do you just think...
2: Do you know that, another that, that day. Did, that didn't happen, and I can't even say that it was fear. My reaction was I was hacked off, if I'm honest. <laughs> I was just a <laughs> surge of the inconvenience of potential death. But, you know, something went through the engine. When we looked at the carburetor, that was full of garbage, so, so there was clearly, clearly some contamination issue. I don't know where that came from, but that was, in fact, the cause of the accident.
0: Only 5% of professional flyers are women why do you think we have so few women pilots at the moment
2: well firstly I think the statistic is is appalling I don't think that represents is a true representation of what women are capable of and what they should be doing I'm sure it's never going to be 50% but and I don't know where the real figure lies maybe 25 30% I'd like to think so as to why it's that bad well do you know, in researching the lives of the pioneering women and, and just the whole circumstances in which they were operating, I have to say that I believe that the military culture that was developed in World War I was hostile to women and effectively blocked women from aviation. And, you know, although the story of aviation is wonderful in terms of human achievements... The dark side of the story in the 20th century is how women were closed out by that military establishment. And, of course, the military establishment created the civil aviation environment. Now, in that interwar period, women were banned. You know, they, were, they, they could hold commercial licence. Lady Heath had a commercial licence, but she couldn't exercise the privileges of that licence because the airspace was closed to women. That's why I think their achievements, that's why I think what they, they did was exponentially greater than what the male pioneers achieved because not only did they do the flying, you know, these wonderful feats of, of of daring and navigation and everything else, but they were doing it in the face of this resistance
1: and this hostility and so much criticism. And do you think girls of nowadays who I think are being brought up in a, in a more equal basis than even we were in our generation, do you think they'll be more likely to go into aviation?
2: Well, from what I've seen so far, I, I don't think so, and I'm really sad to say that, but I've been at a school in Kent with 300 girls, and not one of them wants to be a pilot. Now, I just don't know how statistically that's possible. No. Except that clearly the message is not getting out there. So although there's a huge government and industry effort to recruit more women, not just into aviation but aerospace, you know, all the technology behind it, in the next 20 years they need 600,000 pilots globally. Unless they start
1: recruiting not just this country but globally, we haven't got a prep when I looked at those stats, in India, there are far more women pilots. It's sitting at something like 11% in India. Do you know, isn't that interesting? Very interesting. Because India, of course, does not have a
2: great record for how women are treated in that society. Mm -hmm. And having flown across India, you know, we had tremendous support in India. You know, that was the centre of the flight to Australia. So some of the outreach we were doing there, visiting schools and women's groups, and, of course, meeting some of their military pilots... You know, They're just admitting women into fast jet flying, but I met transport pilots, helicopter pilots, all women. But, yeah, why 12%, 11%? That's mm-hmm. a fantastic result, and, oh. and India deserves recognition for that.
0: I've always wanted to know, for any pilot, what do you bring with you when you're flying? What do you have to take, and what is your luxury?
2: OK, well, in the cockpit, I've obviously got maps and you know those sorts of things, and sunglasses and sunblock, in fact... One of the biggest problems on the flight, I have a fairly prominent nose, but, you know, by by day two of the Africa flight, it was absolutely burnt. It doesn't matter how much block on, you just, perspiration and wind and so forth. And I ended up just tearing a bit of cardboard and shoving it under my goggles, you know, to try and just keep the sun. So you do get, you know, terribly burnt, but... You know, always have water and and biscuits or muesli bars. But again, not easy to do with gloves and, you know, and and with the wind whistling through. And I don't like crumbs in the cockpit, can I say? So I just have the most immediate stuff around me that I can reach. This is very hands on flying. You know, there's no autopilot, it's stick and
1: rudder, you know, and often I'm very low. And I've I've got to be the one that asks this question because it just occurred to me what happens? If you need the loo, have you just got to come down and stop? If it's bad enough, you've got to land. That's
2: what all the little girls want to know.
1: (laughs) I've never never grown up. It's just that kind of
2: question. But, you know, here's the thing. Now, I'm flying, you know, the range of my aeroplane is about 350 nautical miles. The longest I'm in the cockpit is up to five and a half. That's pushing it because that's right on the end, my range, my endurance, my fuel. Mostly I'm in the air for three and four hours. Now, you're getting dehydrated anyway so i think on only two occasions in in something like nearly 40,000 miles of flying i've been so desperate to go to the loo that i
1: practically fell out the cockpit <laughs> And drop my trousers right there <laughs> on the wheel of the air i just kind of got this vision if you're dropping into some un- unsuspecting airfield somewhere, <laughs> running, excuse me, <laughs> straight into the <laughs> loo. It's <laughs> happened. But, you know, here's
2: the difference with the pioneers, OK? When Amy Johnson was flying, she had a range of about 1,200 miles. So she's in this aeroplane eight, nine hours... She did have, apparently, and I didn't know this, but Geoffrey de Havilland, who made the moths, tiger moths, gypsy moths, he made a little sort of flap, some sort of little loo arrangement in the in the cockpit for her. So the physical duress that they were under, mine is, is really quite comfortable compared to what they were, but they were trying to make records, break records. These were These were highly, highly competitive flights.
1: You know, I'm not in that league. You're not really. emulating exactly what well, they were doing. The way they were doing it's it, it's
2: not. What what we're trying to do is really put a spotlight on their achievements, retrace their roots, tell the story again, and of course, build the outreach on the way, which is all the visits. So whereas they're rushing through, you know, Amy got to Australia in what 19 days on her flight. It took me three months to <laughs> cover the same distance. You know, as we built the outreach through all the main centres, through you know, Turkey, the Middle East, Pakistan, India.
1: But, but you're stopping and talking to people there, aren't absolutely. you? Absolutely, yes. absolutely. This is Which this is a f- big thing, very big part of the flight. I'm oh.
2: filming. We're filming. You know, so I've got cameras all over the aeroplane. I've got a support aircraft. You know, I have an engineer with me as well. So, you know, there's a a whole logistical support program behind this, all the permits and and international support for all the cross borders. You know, some of these countries flying through Israel, through Saudi Arabia, these are quite difficult countries to to traverse. Mm. So we needed special permissions in place and fantastic support and cooperation from these governments.
1: So you're off on your travels very, very soon. First, I'm going back to fly
2: my my Stearman. Both of my airplanes are based in Hungary at the moment for the winter, and then after After that, I'm just heading back to New Zealand where mum and my sisters are, my two sisters and their families. And then I'm going to press on to Africa. I wish you all the best.
1: Can I come? (laughs) (laughs) Yes!
0: Linda, if you're going, I'm going.
2: We like a bit of company. We like the girls on board.
0: What an incredible woman. She is so fascinating. I particularly like the one about unearthing women in the aviation because it's really true about women being written out of history in the sense that there were so many women flying in the Second World War that we knew not. Well, I didn't know anything about when I was growing up and learning history. If only I had known about that, I might have been a pilot. Well,
1: you know, there were women flying planes around in the Second World War that were really unseen, unheard of heroes, really, and only come to light recently. I loved the part when she was talking about the crash because I was kind of interested to hear if she was, you know, frightened about it at any point. But the inconvenience of imminent death oh, no. is a phrase... <laughs> It's a phrase that will stick in my mind forever, I
0: think. (laughs) I think that's how you have to be, isn't it? You can't be frightened of something like that. It's not like just falling off your bike and getting on again. It is a really big thing to have a malfunction
1: in the plane. But she is very, very adamant that life goes on. And I think when you are busy and you are doing things like that, I guess at the end of the day, you are just very, very focused on doing what you're doing and not thinking too much about other things. And what about Trace's focus
0: on reaching out to women, not just in the UK, but to all over the
1: world? Brilliant. That is exactly the kind of person that we look for for this show. She's, she's really perfect for this programme. And I, and I love the fact that she is reaching out and making girls think about it. Just putting the idea in their head. And that's all it takes, you know.